0: and intellectuals of this time. The innovative minds. The intelligentsia. Those that are breaking down the barriers and choosing a bohemian existence, escaping from dreary suburban ideals and materialistic death traps. Where are these engaging people? The risk-takers. The revolutionaries those living apart from this big unrest, those escaping the sterility of corporate junkies who get high on materialistic consumption.
1: Welcome to the
0: Bohemian Beat where we will journey beyond the horizon and find the artist living on the edge Going down into the murky waters of their very existence, where these brave souls have re-emerged with art that is challenging, original, and brutal. You have tuned into the Bohemian Beat! I'm ready with you for the next hour. Today, we will be continuing our literary sleuth theme into the Hunger Games, a science fiction trilogy written by American author Suzanne Collins. The novels are set in the future after a series of disasters destroys the previous countries of North America. A new nation called Panem emerges. Panem consists of a wealthy city called the Capitol that dominates 12 poor districts spread across the continent. Many years before the start of the Hunger Games, the districts rebelled against the Capitol but were defeated. As punishment, each year the Capitol requires the districts to send two young tributes, one male, one female, selected by lottery to fight on television until only one survives. The government holds the brutal competition to entertain residents of the capital, and the competition also serves to demonstrate the capital's power over the citizens. How can the capital citizens happily and eagerly participate in the injustices of the Hunger Games? How can capital citizens give up what represents their power their political responsibilities so easily to the tyrant President Snow. We turn to the Imperial Roman phrase "Panem ad circenses," which translates as bread and circuses, and describes the relationship between the tyrant and the capital citizens, in that an entire people abdicates its power in exchange for abundant resources and ready entertainment. We will start with a piece from the Hunger Games trilogy where Katniss Eberdeen, the 16-year-old heroine and survivor of the games who narrates the novels, becomes acquainted with the Latin phrase, panem et circenses, And joining us in the studio to read this excerpt from Book 3, Mockingjay, is Malambimbi High School student Lucy.
2: Rumours of my death have been running rampant, so they send in the team to film me in my hospital bed. I show off my stitches and impressive bruising and congratulate the districts on their successful battle for unity. Then I warn the capital to expect us soon. As part of my rehabilitation, I take short walks above ground each day. One afternoon, Plutarch joins me and gives me an update on our current situation. Now that District 2 has allied with us, the rebels are taking a breather from the war to regroup. Fortifying supply lines, seeing to the wounded, reorganizing their troops. The capital, like Thirteen during the Dark Days, finds itself completely cut off from outside help as it holds the threat of nuclear attack over its enemies. Unlike Thirteen, the capital is not in a position to reinvent itself and become self-sufficient. Oh, the city might be able to scrape along for a while, says Plutarch. Certainly, there are emergency supplies stockpiled. But the significant difference between Thirteen and the capital are the expectations of the populace 13 was used to hardship whereas in the capital all they've known is panem et circenses. what's that i recognize panem of course but the rest is nonsense it's a saying from thousands of years ago written in a language called latin about a place called rome he explains panem et circenses, translates into bread and circuses The writer was saying that in return for full bellies and entertainment, his people had given up their political responsibilities and therefore their power. I think about the capital. The excess of food. And the ultimate entertainment. The Hunger Games. So that's what the districts are for. To provide the bread and circuses. Yes, and as long as that kept rolling in, the capital could control its little empire. Right now, it can provide NIDA, at least at the standard the people are accustomed to.
3: Bursting into song Buried in the hand Another role to play Mocking as the jay Mocking as the jay Silent one in her soft boots, racing through the flames, racing through the flames. Gun. Igniting everyone, igniting everyone Bird in the hand, another role to play Mocking as the jade, mocking as the jade Racing through the flames, racing through the flames. She's the silent one in her soft boots, mocking as the jay, and she be mocking you.
0: was Patti Smith with Capital Letter and before that Lucy reading from the Hunger Games sci-fi trilogy by Suzanne Collins. Suzanne Collins has said that Katniss and the trilogy itself was inspired by two famous figures Theseus and Spartacus. In Greek mythology King Minos of Crete forced the Athenians to send 14 children every nine years to his labyrinth to face the Minotaur, a terrifying half-man, half-bull monster. Just as Katniss did for her sister Prim, Theseus took the place of one of his countrymen. He slew the Minotaur and rescued his fellow tributes. Spartacus famously led a rebellion of slaves against the Roman Empire. Katniss follows the same arc, from slave to gladiator to rebel to the face of a war. Theseus found his way out of the twisting passages with help from Ariadne, Minos's daughter, who had given him a ball of thread to unwind as he went in. This next piece is a poem called Theseus and Ariadne by Edward Robson Taylor, a poet and former mayor of San Francisco who lived between 1838
4: and 1923. Theseus and Ariadne by Edward Robson Taylor. Within the labyrinth's depths, the Minotaur, slain by the sword she gave, lay stark and dead, and with his finger, following her thread, he issued forth to see the heavens once more. Then Theseus, swiftly from the hated shore, with Ariadne on his bosom fled, still hearing, as toward Naxos on they sped, King Minos cries above the ocean's roar deep nested in love softened down they lay when she to him through me alone they way to century sounding fame has now been won and yet i fear oh swear we shall not part by aphrodite do i swear sweetheart then rose pretentious clouds and hid the sun
0: Tangle with Into the Labyrinth and before that Mullamimbi High School student Kai reading a poem by Edward Robinson Taylor called Theseus and Ariadne Archaeologists have discovered a palace that may have been the site of the Cretan Labyrinth The palace is located in the Cretan city of Knossos and it has many passageways and resembles the mystical Labyrinth This next poem Theseus I by Morgan Michaels has another
5: take on the Greek hero Theseus. Theseus I by Morgan Michaels Ovid or whoever it was got it all wrong and for that alone was justly packed off. He has been greatly wronged Theseus, poor lad, who closing on 30 was not longer awfully young. Behind him lay labours and loves galore, yet mightily his veins swelled with rests of youth, and the way the light broke and the shadows fawned on his arm bespoke rests of wild incaution still to come. His intention was never to leave her forever. Ariadne, the hypersensitive, the I-want-it-all girl? Little ex-virgin put pout artist, lovable, perfectly everything going her way. The clever, rich, spoiled king's daughter, whom nothing, nothing satisfied for very long. There on tiresome Naxos, pig-filled isle of ill-doing, void of denizens, Much a good thing, too. Okay, the string was her idea. Pretty good, but surprisingly benign, the Minotaur. Those annual tributes you've heard of? Parsnips. He wanted to ditch the tiresome place himself. His, too, a bum rap. Poor, grotesque. No. The biggest chore was to slip the bloody thing. The labyrinth, that is, the madman's brainchild, whose every turn led wearisomely on to turn, and the door, one thought, lay always just ahead. String. A good idea. Then. But this was now. She tried to goad him a man of his gifts. Imagine, to Surrey dependency, appetite gone. Imagine, him who'd hauled oar alongside Hercules and all else failing resorted to mothering, pet hinting his marvellous self-esteem would vanish without her, leaving him low, guilty, angry, useless. Weak, alone, but...
0: the Bohemian Beat, produced at Bay FM and Byron Bay, and heard nationally across the community radio network. We just heard Haste the Day with Labyrinth, and before that, Marissa, reading a poem by Morgan Michaels called Theseus I. Like Theseus and Spartacus, Katniss' character is rebellious and defiant. She trusts her instincts, Refuses to blindly follow authority, although she seeks counsel, she's too independent to be told what to do, whether by an admirer, a mentor, or by a political leader or tyrant. Based also on Spartacus, a Thracian gladiator who led a great slave revolt against the Roman Republic and the rebellion lasted from 73 BC to 71 BC. And Spartacus stands as this internal symbol of how man must fight against political systems that oppress man's values. A time would come when Rome would be torn down, not by the slaves alone, but by slaves and serfs and peasants and by free barbarians who will join them and so long as man labored and other men took and used the fruit of those who labored, the name of Spartacus would be remembered, whispered sometimes and shouted loud and clear at other times. This next piece is from the 1960 movie Spartacus directed by Stanley Kubrick. This scene is when a poet called Antonius recites a poem for Spartacus and his companions.
6: When the blazing sun hangs low in the western sky. When the wind dies away on the mountain. When the song of the meadow lark turns still. When the field locus clicks no more in the field. And the sea foam sleeps like a maiden at rest. And twilight touches the shape of the wandering earth. I turn home. Through blue shadows and purple woods I turn home I turn to the place that I was born To the mother who bore me And the father who taught me Long ago Long ago Long ago Alone am I now lost and alone In a far wide wandering world Yet still when the blazing sun hangs low When the wind dies away and the sea foam sleeps and twilight touches the wandering earth, I turn home.
0: was a piece from Spartacus, a ballet by Aram Kachutorian, where the work follows the exploits of Spartacus, the leader of the slave uprising against the Roman Empire. You are listening to the Bohemian Beat, and today we are exploring some of the themes in the Hunger Games trilogy, a book series by Suzanne Collins. In The Hunger Games, Katniss and Peter are often called the star-crossed lovers from District 12 because of their romance where only one can survive. The phrase was coined in the prologue of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. From forth the fatal loins of those two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life. This next piece from the play Romeo and Juliet, written around 1595, is from the famous balcony scene where Romeo is hiding in the orchard after the feast. He sees Juliet leaning out of a high window. Though it is late at night, Juliet's surpassing beauty makes Romeo imagine that she is all sorts of magical things.
7: But soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Arise, fair sun, and kill the envious moon, who is already sick and pale with grief, that thou, her maid, art far more fair than she. Be not her maid. Since she is envious, her vestal livery is but sick and green. A number of fools do wear it. Cast it off. It is my lady. Oh, it is my love. Oh, that she knew she were. She speaks, yet she says nothing. What of that? Her eye discourses. I will answer it. I am too bold. It is not to me she speaks. Two of the fairest stars in all the heaven having some business to entreat her eyes to twinkle in their spheres till they return. What if her eyes were there, they in her head? The brightness of her cheek would shame those stars, as daylight doth a lamp. Her eye in heaven would through the airy region stream so bright that birds would sing and think it were not night. See how she leans her cheek upon her hand. Oh, that I were a glove upon that hand. That I might touch that cheek.
1: Love struck Romeo in the streets of serenade Laying everybody low with a love song that he made Well, he finds a convenient streetlight and steps out of the shade Says something like, well, you and me, babe, how about it? Well, Juliet says, hey, it's Romeo, You nearly gave me a heart attack well underneath the window, singing, "Hey, love, my boyfriend's back." You shouldn't come around here singing up to people like that. And anyway, what are you gonna do about it, well, Juliet? The dice were loaded from the start, and I bet that you explode. There's a place for us You know the movie song When you're gonna realize That it was just that the time was wrong Juliet they come up on different streets. And both were streets of shame We're both dirty and both clean But the dream was just the same Well I dreamed your dream for you And now your dream is real So how can you look at me as if I was Just another Winnie Ideal Well you can fall for chains of silver You can fall for chains of gold these strangers and the promises they hold. Well, you promised me everything, you promised me thick and thin, yeah. And now you say, Oh, Romeo, right, yeah. yeah. Well, I used to have a scene with him, Juliet. When we made love, you used to cry. That I love you like the stars above. I love you till I die, and there's a place for us. You know the movie song. When you're gonna realize that it was just that the time was wrong, Juliet. I can't do the talk Like they talk on the TV And I can't sing my love song The way it's meant to be And I can't do everything But I'd do anything for you No, I can't do everything But be in love with you And all I do is miss you And the way we used to be all I do is keep the beat and the band company. And all I do is kiss you through the bars of Orion. With oh, Juliet, I do the stars with we'll you anytime. With oh, Juliet, the dice were loaded from the stars. Oh
6: you are listening to the Bohemian beat brought to you by the community radio network.
0: That was Lisa Mitchell with Romeo and Juliet. And before that, Michael Sheen reading an excerpt from Romeo and Juliet. Is it possible to turn love into hate? Through torture, deprivation and sophisticated behaviour modification processes? Can love be ultimately destroyed? In the science fiction classic 1984 by George Orwell, love is considered counterproductive to the big brother totalitarian Regime. The star-crossed lovers, Winston and Julia, initially refused to believe that anything could destroy their love. This next piece is from an excerpt from a dramatisation of George Orwell's novel 1984 by the NBC University Theatre. Julia.
8: Darling, it was like a message, as if O'Brien was saying, if you ever want to see me, this is where I can be found. But
5: he's an important member of the inner party, dear. If it's a
8: trap. Darling, this is part of something that happened years ago. First, it was a secret involuntary thought. Then I started a diary. I've moved from thoughts to words, and now from words to action.
0: Where will it end?
8: In the Ministry of Love. I've accepted that. The end was contained in the beginning. Has it ever occurred to you that the best thing for us to do would be simply to walk out of here before it's too late and never see each other again?
0: Yes,
5: dear. It's occurred to me several times. But I'm not going to do it all the same.
8: We've been lucky. It can't last much longer.
5: What you do, I'm going to do.
8: We may be together for another six months, a year. There's no knowing. At the end, we're certain to be apart. Do you realize how utterly alone we shall be? When once they get hold of us, there's nothing... Nothing either of us can do for the other. If I confess, they'll shoot you. If I don't, they'll shoot you just the same. Neither of us will even know whether the other is alive or dead. The one thing that matters is that we shouldn't betray one another. Although, even that can't make the slightest difference. Everybody always confesses.
5: You can't help it. They torture
8: you. I don't mean confessing. Confession is not betrayal. What you say or do doesn't matter. Only feelings matter. If they could make me stop loving you... That would be the real betrayal.
0: They can't do that. They can make you say anything, anything, but they can't make you believe it. They can't get inside of you. No,
8: that's quite true. They can't get inside you. If you can feel that staying human is worthwhile, even when it can't have any result whatever, then you've beaten them. Darling,
0: whenever it is you go to O'Brien, I'm going with you.
9: By just reflecting words you hear No iron in your veins Could give you any sense of pain or fear It's just another lie It's just another calculation Keeps me alive, but what is it that runs through you? Electricity and wires dictating everything.
0: Jamie D., and be followed an excerpt from a dramatisation of George Orwell's novel 1984 by the NBC University Theatre. In Suzanne Collins' series, The Hunger Games, the Capitol has established total surveillance in the districts. Surveillance not only limits freedom, but threatens life. This is conveyed in the metaphor Katniss uses to describe the cameras at the reaping perched like buzzards. Surveillance is associated with death, with scavengers who feed off death in the way that the capital feeds off the misery of its people. Katniss also begins to understand that there is a fate far worse than death. It is only when faced with the possibility that Peter, Gail or herself might fall into the hands of the capital that she really starts considering the story behind a song taught to her by her father called The Hanging Tree. And Lucy will read this next piece from The Hunger Games, Book 3, Mockingjay.
2: Cheese sandwiches are passed around and we eat them in the shade of the trees. I intentionally sit at the far edge of the group, next to Pollock's, so I don't have to talk. No one's talking much, really. In the relative quiet, the birds take back the woods. I nudge Pollux with my elbow, and point out a small black bird with a crown. It hops to a new branch, momentarily opening its wings, showing off its white patches. Pollux gestures to my pin, and raises his eyebrows, questioningly. I nod, confirming it's a Mockingjay. I hold up one finger to say, wait, I'll show you, and whistle a bird call. The Mockingjay cocks its head, and whistles the call right back at me. Then, to my surprise, Pollux whistles a few notes of his own. The bird answers him immediately. Pollux's face breaks into an expression of delight and he has a series of melodic exchanges with the Mockingjay. My guess is it's the first conversation he's had in years. Music draws mocking jays like blossoms through bees, and in a short while he's got a half dozen of them perched in the branches over our heads. He taps me on the arm, and uses a twig to write a word in the dirt. Sing? Usually, I'd decline, but it's kind of impossible to say no to Pollux, given the circumstances. Besides, the Mockingjay's song voices are different from their whistles, and I'd like him to hear them. So before I actually think about what I'm doing, I sing Rue's four notes, the ones she used to signal the end of the workday in eleven the notes that ended up as the background music to her murder. The birds don't know that. They pick up the simple phrase and bounce it back and forth between them in sweet harmony. Just as they did in the Hunger Games, before the mutations broke through the trees, chased us onto the cornucopia and slowly gnawed Kato to a bloody pulp. Want to hear them doing real song? I burst out. Anything to stop those memories. I'm on my feet, moving back into the trees, resting my hand on the rough trunk of a maple where the birds perch. I have not sung The Hanging Tree out loud for ten years, because it's forbidden, but I remember every word. I began softly, sweetly, as my father did.
10: Are you, are you coming to the tree? Where they strung up a man, they say murdered three. Strange things did happen here. No stranger would it be if we met up at midnight in the hanging tree?
2: The mocking jays began to alter their songs as they become aware of my new
10: offering are you are you coming to the tree where the dead man called out for his love to flee strange things did happen here no stranger would it be if we met up at midnight in the hanging tree I have the bird's attention now
2: in one more verse surely they will have captured the melody as it's simple and repeats four times with little variation
10: are you are you coming to the tree where i told you to run so we'd both be free strange things did happen here no stranger would it be if we met up at midnight in the hanging tree a hush in the trees
2: just the rustle of leaves in the breeze but no birds mockingjay or other peter's right they do fall silent when i sing just as they did for my father.
10: Are you, are you coming to the tree? Where a necklace of rope, side by side with me? Strange things did happen here, no stranger would it be. If we met up at midnight, in the hanging tree
2: the birds are waiting for me to continue but that's it last verse in the stillness i remember the scene i was home from a day in the woods with my father sitting on the floor with prim who was just a toddler singing the hanging tree making us necklaces out of scraps of old rope like it said in the song not knowing the real meaning of the words The tune was simple and easy to harmonise to, though, and back then I could memorise almost anything set to music after a round or two. Suddenly, my mother snatched the rope necklaces away and was yelling at my father. I started to cry because my mother never yelled. And then Prim was wailing, and I ran outside to hide. As I had exactly one hiding spot, in the meadow underneath the honeysuckle bush, my father found me immediately. He calmed me down and told me everything was fine, only we'd better not sing that song anymore. My mother just wanted me to forget it. So, of course, every word was immediately, irrevocably, branded into my brain. We didn't sing it anymore, my father and I, or even speak of it. After he died, it used to come back to me a lot. Being older, I began to understand the lyrics. At the beginning, it sounds like a guy is trying to get his girlfriend to secretly meet up with him at midnight. But it's an odd place for a tryst A hanging tree, where a man was hanged for murder. The murderer's lover must have had something to do with the killing. Or maybe they were just going to punish her anyway, because his corpse called out for her to flee. That's weird, obviously, the talking corpse bit. But it's not until the third verse that the hanging tree begins to get unnerving. You realise the singer of the song is the dead murderer. He's still in the hanging tree. And even though he told his lover to flee, he keeps asking if she's coming to meet him. The phrase, where I told you to run, so we'd both be free, is the most troubling because at first you think he's talking about when he told her to flee, presumably to safety. But then you wonder if he meant for her to run to him. To death. In the final stanza, it's clear that's what he's waiting for. His lover, with her rope necklace, hanging dead next to him in the tree. I used to think the murderer was the creepiest guy imaginable. Now, with a couple of trips to the Hunger Games under my belt, I decide not to judge him without knowing more details. Maybe his lover was already sentenced to death, and he was trying to make it easier. To let her know he'd be waiting... Or maybe he thought the place he was leaving her was really worse than death. Didn't I want to kill Peter with that syringe to save him from the capital? Was that really my only option? Probably not. But I couldn't think of another one at the time. I guess my mother thought the whole thing was too twisted for a seven-year-old, though. Especially one who made her own rope necklaces. It wasn't like hanging was something that only happened in a story. Plenty of people were executed that way in Twelve. You can bet she didn't want me singing it in front of my music class. She probably wouldn't like me doing it here for Pollux, even, but at least I'm not- Wait, no, I'm wrong. As I glance sideways, I see Caster has been taping me. Everyone is watching me intently. And Pollux has tears running down his cheeks because no doubt my freaky song has dredged up some terrible incident in his life. Great. I sigh and lean back against the trunk. That's when the mocking jays begin their rendition of the Hanging Tree. In their mouths, it's quite beautiful. Conscious of being filmed, I stand quietly until I hear Chrysida call, Cut!
11: stranger would it be if we met up at midnight
0: to the Bohemian Beat, and that was Tellison Orchestra. And before that, Lucy, reading from The Hunger Games. Lucy, what grabbed you about the story?
2: Well, the first time I read it, I was, I, as I said before to you <laughs> in private, it well, I was on an aeroplane, and I was so absorbed in the story and the way it was told and everything that the author managed to... Put in there somehow and describe the way in which the power the power was corrupt and the the districts fighting against it and I love the new take on a teenage girl fighting against the powers that be rebelling somehow against what she thinks is wrong and standing up for what she believes is right. The dynamics and the relationships in the story, they were just amazing. And I love the way that the relationships between her and the two male counterparts, Gail and Peter, were expressed because it's more unusual than what a normal teenage angst story, love story, (laughs) romantic, you know, the normal stuff that you get. It's deeper more because they have they're about to try and kill each other they've got a whole other thing going on it's a struggle to survive you know it was really powerful for me the first time i read it and ever since then too i've read it about three times since it was just amazing well
0: thank you so much for joining us today on the bohemian beat lucy it's been an absolute pleasure having you here on the show and we're going to end with another track from the hunger games called Take the Heartland by Glenn Hansard. And don't forget to tune in again next week for more poetic adventures with me, Riddy on the Bohemian beat. And may, may the, the Bohemian, Bohemian rhythm, rhythm always beat in, beat in your, your favour. favour.
6: Grab my knife and run through those stitches Throw my friends down in the ditches Before they even know what I've come here for My head down on my face like a Fidel Castro Like a Che Guevara or a Fidel Castro I'm gonna grab my fork, my life's one last wish And I'm gonna take the life in a knife And I'm gonna sit my red not fall Take
12: the heart, man.